Hi, everyone. Welcome back to On Point. And once again, we've got Ashley Church uh, joining us. This is uh, part two, um, as promised. Ashley, uh, a few days back, was talking to us around uh, housing. As we know, um, he's a man big into data, big into numbers, and has applied that expertise into the property market. But he's also had uh, thoughts around COVID and not so much about the, if you will, the health side per se, but what the numbers are telling us and importantly, how the numbers um, can actually help make decisions, how we uh, respond appropriately. So Ashley, great to have you back. The feedback uh, from the housing podcast has been uh, fantastic. Uh, looking at the numbers and metrics in the background, uh, clearly hitting an audience. And I say the various comments from my listeners has been uh, fantastic. So thank you very much for that. I'd have to say one of them said, you basically changed my perspective on housing. And I just think probably, that in itself probably is my, That was probably my mum. Oh, was your mum? I'll, I'll go back and have a look. Oh, yeah, Mrs. Chirk. No, that's great. Hey, actually, for listeners to know as well, I mentioned you can find Ashley on LinkedIn, but you can actually find uh, probably more easily a lot of his thoughts and writing at ashleychurch.com. So that's his website. It's a repository of all his uh, work. So encourage listeners uh, to go there. But as we say, this part two, this discussion uh, is around uh, COVID. So in recent days, or was it maybe a week or so ago, uh, Ashley, you posted some information around COVID numbers in New Zealand. And I think one of your core uh, themes or arguments was actually of all the numbers that we get spat out at us, it's actually the death rate, uh, which is probably the more important one. So I'm going to throw it over to you, share with listeners uh, your thoughts around COVID. Apply that data mind sure. uh, from housing so to... Pandemic. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so firstly, quick, quick caveat, obviously, to all of that is that I'm not a medical practitioner, nor doctor, nor, nor, nor anything else approaching any of those things. But for the purposes of what I'm going to talk to you about, I don't need to be, um, because the numbers themselves are self-explanatory in the stuff that I'm going to cover. So, this actually tracks right back to to Christmas. I, I was sitting here over Christmas thinking about COVID, as one does. Um, and, and, and really just really trying to come to terms in my own head with, with what my view is. And what I mean by that was I had sort of a, for want of a better word, a populist view, which was that I thought the government was doing it all wrong and, and you know, that the approach that they were taking to lockdowns and what have you was wrong. Um, but there was a bit at the end which was around the why, which I still haven't got quite, my, quite got my head around. So, so I actually did some pretty extensive research on... Uh, the whole COVID phenomenon worldwide to see what had actually happened in the two odd years, basically, since we first became aware of it. And I came up with some numbers, which um, I'm now that I've, I've got my head around them, I'm very strong in the view that I'm going to articulate. But before I tell you that, let's just go back to February, March 2020 and think about what happened when when COVID first really became a thing uh, in, in, in all of our lives. So in 2020, um, uh, David Seymour from ACT and and uh, Simon Bridges from from the National Party when he was when he was the leader, were both encouraging the government to do something with regard to this this pandemic which we were hearing about from overseas coming out of China, and the government didn't. And it's interesting because when you track back what happened over that first couple of months, it basically puts page to this idea that the government moved hard and fast. They didn't. It actually took about three months to to, to respond. But putting all that aside. By uh, mid to late March of 2020, they finally relented, closed our borders, put us into lockdown, did a whole range of other things. Now, let me put that in context because it's really important in the context of what I'm about to say. Uh, the measures that they took were based not just here but worldwide on an assumption of and it's in, in, of, of 7% of the population dying 
as a result of COVID. Now, it's really interesting because when you go back and try and find that figure, it's really difficult to find figures that actually talk about that assumed um, mortality rate back in 2020. Um, and I can think of a range of reasons why that might be the case. But back then, that was clearly the number that was being talked worldwide. And that was based kind of broadly on what epidemiologists were saying and on some assumptions around what had happened with Spanish flu and what would therefore be likely to happen with COVID as well. And based on that number of 7%, if that had happened, that would have been half a billion, half a billion deaths, 500 million people worldwide would have died as a result of COVID. In New Zealand, that number would have been about uh, uh, 350,000. It was a huge number. Based on those numbers, the government here and indeed the government in other parts of the world were absolutely right to do what they did because in the, given the uncertainty and given the possibility of deaths in that sort of magnitude, they had to do everything that they could to protect the population and lockdowns and all of the other stuff that we did in those early stages were absolutely appropriate measures and I applaud Jacinda and Dern and her government for, for doing what they did. Um, as indeed I do governments all around the world. So, so let's take that as a given. Over the last couple of years, though, that's changed. That situation's changed. And it's changed not necessarily just because of some of the things that the government's done. It's changed more importantly because we now have, Simon, a much, much clearer idea of what COVID actually looks like and what it's done over that period of time. And if we look, and, and for purposes of what I'm about to tell you, I'm going to ignore the New Zealand figures. And the reason I'm going to ignore them is because they're kind of otherworldly. We, we were so focused on eliminating death in its entirety that our figures are almost unbelievable. So, so you kind of have to put that aside and look at what the average experience of COVID was around the world. So you need to look at the global number, because remember, there were some countries that were quite extreme in their approach in a way that we were. There were other countries that took a much more laissez-faire, much more relaxed approach. So what you need to do is look at the experience of those different countries and also look at what they mean cumulatively as averages across the world to get some feel for what actually happened with COVID and what, 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 what it means now in 2022 as we look back on that and we look forward to see how we can respond to it. This is where it gets controversial. Uh, we know that in 2021, in the entire time since COVID started, keeping in mind that we were aiming, not aiming, that's a terrible word, but we were expecting or anticipating a death rate of about half a billion, the actual number of deaths from COVID is something a little over 5.5 million worldwide. Now, that's still a high number. That's more than the population of New Zealand. And so, when, you know, when, when, when we, that number's presented to us, we, we, we're shocked by it and we say that's a lot of people. Oh, my God, you know, that's, that's, that's a huge number of people have died. And, and, and part of the reason, for, and it is a large number of people, but part of the reason we're shocked by it is because the concept of billions is just outside of our scope of understanding. And when you look at that number in the context of the world population, it's actually a very small number. Um, and, and not just small of it in and of itself, but small in the context of uh, the other conditions that actually uh, happened uh, over the same period of time. So if you look at uh, COVID in, uh, in 2021, I'll use 2021 as an example, three and a half million people died last year of COVID worldwide globally. That made COVID the fifth worst killer. In other words, it may, there, were four thing, there were four conditions that struck people in 2021 globally that killed more people than COVID. And here's the thing, the combined result of those deaths against the three and a half million from COVID was 42 million. 42 million people died of conditions that were worse than COVID. 
Now, that's not to, to trivialise those 3.5 million deaths, but it is to put it in some sort of context. Incidentally, the fourth biggest killer was influenza, which killed six, just over 6 million people against the 5.5 million that died since 2020. So the point that I'm making here is that we have made a conscious decision as a country as to, to, to treat COVID differently to the way that we treat other diseases. If it had killed 350,000 people as it was anticipated, I don't think anybody would be debating any of the current um, uh, approaches that are being taken. But in New Zealand, COVID has killed uh, virtually nobody. And just, just to give you some idea of, of the numbers of people that died in 2021 from other conditions, uh, last year, 5,315 people died of coronary heart disease, 2,500 died from stroke, 2,262 died from Alzheimer's and dementia, uh, 1,718 died from lung disease. Now, you might look at those and say, well, they're not, they're not diseases, but in fact, but all of those things are preventable if you decided you were going to take a, a, a draconian approach to them. So, for example, coronary heart disease is a really good example, the biggest killer. If New Zealand had decided as a nation that it was going to ban, we know, for example, coronary heart disease is caused in a lot of cases by, by bad dietary habits. So if the, if the country decided in its wisdom that it was going to banish and abolish all foods that, were, were, that, that added to cholesterol or, or, or were contributors to, to heart disease, um, then it, it, it would reduce those numbers over time. We choose not to do that. And the reason we choose not to do it is because as a nation, we recognise that there's a balance between personal responsibility and the rights of the individual and the ability of the state to affect health changes in individuals. And that's a constant um, uh, point of tension between, uh, the, between the citizenry and the government. So, for example, from time to time, people might say, hey, we could, if, we, if we introduce this new drug, Herceptin, then, then we could reduce the incidence of, of breast cancer. And so there's that constant debate going on. That's a healthy debate to have. But as an overall principle as a nation, we recognise that there's a balance between those. And we don't try and eliminate those things because it's the balance between the rights of the individual. For some reason, Simon, we've treated COVID as if it's completely different to all of those other things. And we have a total elimination uh, policy toward COVID that we don't have even toward influenza. Now, the problem with that for me is that if, if, as I say, it had killed in very large numbers as was anticipated two years ago, I'd have no debate with that at all. But given that it's only, it, it would only have been the fourth or the fifth largest killer in New Zealand if it had been basically allowed to do uh, what it's done in other nations and on the same percentage basis as we've seen death in other nations, then I don't understand why we have this vaccination. Now, here's the bit that I'm going to say that's controversial. Based on those numbers, COVID wasn't a pandemic. It was, a, it was a bad virus, and it was a virus that in the early stages of, of its uh, impact on our population uh, uh, was quite dangerous to the population. Clearly, and I don't think anybody's debating this now, as it goes through its various different variant uh, uh, transmutations, currently um, uh, Omicron, um, it's, it's a less and less serious condition. At what point do we say this wasn't a virus, that a day will come when, when a virus does hit our nation and, and, and where it does potentially wipe out very large numbers of people, but this wasn't it. And given that it's not it, I would argue that we're now at the point where, with the benefit of information, with the benefit of data, with the benefit of global information that we're able to look back on and actually uh, measure our, our response, that we should be saying, now it's time for us to actually do what's now most important, and that's to restore our economy and put our country back on its feet. Now, that's not to say that if people still feel safe as a result of wearing masks, or vaccinations, or any of the other things that the government's been doing, they shouldn't be entitled to continue to do that. In fact, I would say that for anybody who, who believes that those things are protecting them, that the government should still provide the opportunity to allow them to do those things. 
but for the rest of the population that just wants to get on and open up and start to move on again and treat life the way that it was before February 2020, I believe that time's come. And my concern is the language which is coming out of the the, uh, the podium of truth at the moment um, is indicating that not only are we are we sticking with these measures, but that there is an indefinite aspect to the time frame that's been given where we could find ourselves still in this position in October, in October or November of this year when the rest of the world has simply moved on because it's taken cognizance of the sorts of things that I'm talking to you about here today. Look, you raised, and actually was just happy to sit back and, and listen to that because I think actually it's been a really good array of thoughts. I mean, there's a few things for me in there. First and foremost, you know, context and numbers uh, is important. Um, and as you say, and I've argued this before philosophically, big numbers, big concepts, we don't, we can't understand them as humans, really. We, we always have to dial it back or towards something that we can understand. I find it as a politician, if I'm talking about spending $100,000 on a playground, people will have a strong opinion. If I talk about, you know, $100, $200 million on X, Y, and Z, it's, it's almost incomprehensible. So numbers need to be in context. Yeah. And I think that's certainly been a challenge um, over this two years um, of COVID. We get lots and lots of numbers thrown at us, but often what, what does it mean? Um, and I'd argue too, uh, whether you have a thought on this, a lot of even the reporting at times has been very sensationalist. So it is awful to see um, open graves and extra mortuaries and so forth. Absolutely. But context is often uh, missing. Not in every case, but it's, it's often missing. The can other I, can is I pick up on, that, can I pick up on that, Simon, just before your second point? So, so you're absolutely right, because the media coverage is on number of... So, for example, on Omicron, it's on the number of cases per day. And you, you made the point at the beginning, and I haven't probably made a strong enough point of it, is that for me, and this is an opinion people may not share, for me, the only thing that should matter is the death rate. So if, if Omicron if, if, or, or indeed any variant of, of, of uh, uh, COVID is, is killing people, that's one thing. But these other things that are being introduced as excuses for prolonging the measures simply don't stack up. So, for example, the first one that we were getting for a while, there was around ICU beds. It's putting aside the fact that we haven't had um, the number of people in, in ICU that was predicted. Even if we had, if they weren't dying, that's not reason to close down your economy. It might be reason to set up you know, large hospital um, tent farms and things for a period of time for, for people to convalesce, but it wasn't actually a reason to close down the economy. But now we're getting other nonsense. We're getting things like people talking about the numbers being wrong. So now that we recognise three and a half million people died last year as a result of COVID, far, far, far less than, than anticipated, now we're getting people saying, oh, well, of course, it's well known that the numbers are wrong and that, in fact, they're not being properly recorded. That's not well known at all. Um, it's, it's something that we're saying in order to prolong... Um, the, the debate, and and again, we're focusing on something other than death. We're not focusing on the real thing, which is whether, whether people are actually uh, dying of COVID. And the other one that we're getting, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but this one just doesn't ring true to me, is this talk about long COVID. So, so the latest thing that we're talking about is this idea that, oh, well, perhaps it won't kill people, but it's going to have deleterious health effects on them for a long period of time. Well, firstly, we're, we're freely admitting in other areas of this epidemic that we actually don't know much about this thing, but we somehow have some certainty around the idea that long COVID is going to be an impact. And secondly, we don't talk about long influenza or or, or any of these other conditions. So, so we seem to be selective. Now, the point I'm making in all that is that what we're doing is having recognised as a society that it's not killing people, what we're now doing is looking for other reasons to, to justify the fact that we're extending measures, which I think for most normal, decent thinking people uh, are, are beyond their use by date. 
Well, you've anticipated actually one of my counterpoints because it is right. reading your articles as you talked about death rates and it was like, well, that's a fair point, but obviously there's other other aspects that come through with COVID from an overwhelming potentially a health system through to, you yeah. know, these not as clearly defined what long COVID is specifically. It's clear that there are there are after effects, but you, you've, you've counted that um, relatively so because it ultimately... I would argue it comes back to proportionalism that, yeah, there are a number of conditions which we as humans suffer. Some kill us. Uh, some make our life very, very difficult. And you talk about COPT, so they all to do with your heart conditions and so forth. Well, we, we choose to to manage that. And so you, you've arguably ended up with an exceptionalism around the management of COVID, which we haven't uh, arguably seen before. And perhaps one of my key points is when I look back two years ago, uh, the decisions that were made on the basis of data extrapolations models, arguably without nuance made sense. But as time goes on, and I think it's one of your key points, but correct me if I'm wrong, but as time goes on, we don't even have to rely on models anymore. We have real-time data. In fact, another person I've got a lot of time for, Rodney Jones, um, talked about this a few months ago and said, well, we don't need lots of modelling per se because actually there's an enormous amount of data, both in New Zealand and overseas, which begins to to help guide us. But as you say, we, we seem to be continuing um, down a line of, of um, actions, almost because we have to justify what we've done in the past rather than saying, you know what, things are changing, be it around testing, antivirals, uh, and so forth. I, I, I'm a cynic. I go further than that. I, think it's, I don't think it's just about justifying actions. I think it's, uh, I think it's because there's an anticipated electoral consequence of that, but by which I mean that uh, if I were the Prime Minister and I was looking at the impact that my approach to COVID uh, produced in 2020, i.e. an overwhelming electoral majority of the 2020 election, um, and I didn't have much else in my, my grab bag of options, then I might, in my mind, reasonably assume that if I did the same thing again, I'd get the same result in 2023. And I, 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 I don't think it's much more complicated than that. I think this is about saying, if we do the same stuff again, people will love us again. Well, there's another two at least aspects in my mind. The first is um, particularly around uh, the modelling and the numbers which experts are putting forward. One of the things that I worry about, and it came around Omicron, we had different uh, experts and some of the usual suspects putting out huge numbers about how many cases there would be a day. I mean, some had us up 80, 100,000 a day. Look, you know, they could be right. I might have to come back on a podcast in a few weeks' time and apologise and we'll be happy to do so if I'm wrong. But sensationalist numbers. But why I mention it is I worry that those sort of numbers, those sort of models which are proven wrong undermine people's um, trust in and the credibility of these experts. And that's probably a much bigger picture, but it's one of the aspects of COVID which worries me. It doesn't matter if it's the epidemiologists, the modelers, or politicians. In a lot of ways, what we've been saying hasn't rung true, and I worry that that's going to affect the public's perception and ultimately even the support of democracy and all of this sort of stuff, which might sound dramatic. So if you, want to see, if, you, if, you, if you want to see the outplaying of that in, in real life, it's camping on your lawn in Wellington. So so that is almost the direct, not all of it, because some of those people have been opposed to the measures right through and are anti-vax and a whole range of other things. But a big chunk of what's happening with the protest in Wellington, and indeed to the extent that that protest is supported by, the, by a wider community in New Zealand, is, is uh, symptomatic of exactly what you're talking about, that, that growing distrust and what I find interesting is the people that I talk to, lots of them, who voted Labour at the last election, who who were supportive, who have compl- who've done a 180 degree turn 
in their position and are now very angry and very ready for this stuff to finish. So this is not about, you know, as much as the, the Prime Minister like to, might like to characterise it as the alt-right and, you know, this 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 extremist contingent and Trumpism, it's just not. It's it's ordinary New Zealanders. There's a few nutters down there, don't get me wrong, but it's ordinary New Zealanders who are angry uh, at the continuation of measures that they see. They don't necessarily articulate it the way I do and they don't necessarily look at it in the same way, but innately and somewhere in their head they just know that this is now nonsense and that the continuation of some of the measures that are taking place now, which are designed to appeal to a culture of fear for which there is a ready constituency, don't get me wrong, but they're recognising that most of those measures now are actually out of place and no longer needed. Well, it's what I've talked about in Parliament last year and a little bit uh, when I've had the chance this year about proportionalism, um, which is, yeah, you, you try to balance the various goods. And you've touched on it earlier on. You know, we want to protect people's health. We don't want people to die, but we also want to have our freedoms. We also want to have a functioning economy. Yeah. Um, and the lessons that have been learned, and as we keep going back to the statistics, the numbers that you're seeing are, are indicating a, a change is required. But as I say, it's one of my my growing concerns as a, a politician, first and foremost, and then secondly, as a, a philosopher, is that distrust that's growing. I, I worry, even as I go around my electorate or parts of the country, that good, smart thinking people have lost confidence and you go that that doesn't bode well i mean i may be catastrophizing i don't want to but it, it it worries me which is why it's always good to come back to to numbers let me give you this will sound a bit weird to you but i'll, I'll make my point and i think you'll understand it if you want to look at what the government's done with 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 COVID to see whether or not that's an isolated phenomenon or whether it's a philosophy that transcends other things that they do you need look no further to what's going on with with road speeds at the moment you might think where's this come from let me explain why i'm saying that um the you would have heard yesterday that that uh ministry of transport came out with a with a declared ambition and it was one that repeating from the previous year that they wanted to to reduce road deaths to zero by i think 2040. Great, admirable, no problem with that. And we all know that, uh, that that's achievable. But all you've got to do, but we know that to the extent that you reduce road speed, that you reduce deaths. In fact, if you wanted to take the extreme, you just wouldn't let anybody in a car and nobody would ever have a car crash again. So, so there is an extreme to that, and that the more you increase road speeds, the more likelihood of people dying if, they, if, if two vehicles collide with each other. Now, what's interesting about that is because I've been watching the same TV ads as probably some of you viewers have and wondering what on earth's going on with this sudden focus and fascination around the country with reducing speeds, not just on state highways, but on, on local streets. It's the same wrapping up in cotton wool mentality, and I actually think it's coming from the same place. I don't mean that in a coordinated way. I just think it's the same ideology, which says that people don't understand how to look after themselves. We know better, and so what we will do is we, we, we will fix the problem on their behalf because they because they can't do it for themselves. So things like the reduction of road speeds, which again is causing so much angst and so much anger around the country, is moving that balance. So the balance in the past has been we understand that people crash and that they can die from crashing, but the balance against that is personal responsibility and your own behaviour on the road. Taking that off people individually and saying, we're going to take that off you and we're going to progressively reduce road speeds so that we can get the road told down. Do you, do you follow my line of reasoning? I do actually. It, was, it actually takes me exactly to the second point I was going to draw you into. So well anticipated. It's what I call safetyism, <laughs> and it's not a unique term to me, but it's actually there. The your safety, the um, almost that fear of death, which at one level is rational, but the you must be kept safe 
um, at all costs. And the government will play a, a stronger and more heavy part in your life to keep you safe. So obviously around the management of COVID, I think you're 100% correct when it comes to the notion of road safety. Of course, we don't want anyone to die, but equally, I want to be able to drive my car down the street more than five kilometres um, an hour, for example. But you'd also see it, I would suggest to you, in two other ways, um, the proposed hate speech legislation, we've got to keep you safe from yep. certain words, certain ideas you must be safe uh, from. And you're seeing it more and more um, work on a few human rights commissions and other pseudo groups who are just you know, trying to keep you safe. Um, Except I, I have a different view on hate speech because I don't believe hate speech is about safety. I believe hate speech is a euphemism for, for controlled speech. And, and there is a difference between the two. Hate speech is about, in theory, protecting people from the deleterious consequences of speech that might harm them. Controlled speech is about stopping people saying things that don't suit your ideology. It's a different thing. And and the, the, the focus of the government currently is around the latter. It's about saying our worldview says these things. If you believe other things that are different to that, you're not going to be allowed to say them. I think we'd agree um, insofar as I certainly see hate speech has at least two aspects, as you say. There is one I would suggest in this context is the safety and keep you away from certain things. But the compelled speech um, or the banned speech is a very, very big part of it as well. Um, that's perhaps so. We're going to get some free speech. Uh, Peter, I know you've been a strong advocate for it um, on this podcast as well, because I think that's one of the, the big, big issues uh, coming up into New Zealand society, what you are and are not allowed to to say. But the other side, I'd argue, I think you're going to see aspects of the COVID response roll into other spaces. You've seen the Greens already. I know I'm being partisan. Talking about climate change, Catherine Delahunte was out very clearly saying, hey, the big hand of government should apply to this other emergency. There's also the somewhat rhetorical question, but do respond, is, as you say, there's many other issues which um, New Zealanders die from or suffer from. Why are we not imposing such heavy measures there? You touched on, again, heart disease. Well, why are we not banning sugar, anything that's fat? I mean, we should eat tofu if I wasn't to be too controversial. Su suicide. Suicide that we all talk about and recognise that it's a terrible thing and what, uh, what, what harm it's doing for our society. There are things that we could do to reduce the suicide rate. We don't. And, you know, you could argue where that balance is and whether we've got it right. But... But we don't for, for, for reasons to do with with recognising that, that that the rights of the end. What, why do we not? What you know? What breast cancer, lung? There are a whole range of things that we could do in each of those spaces to reduce the incidence of mortality, which we which we choose not to. Why is COVID different? As I say, come back to my point. If if it had killed hundred thousand people, we wouldn't even be having we wouldn't be doing this podcast because nobody would question the measures. But when it's when when if it had been let run, run uh, riot and had followed the same trajectory as nations in Europe, and that I think is a reasonable assumption to say that's probably where it would have sat. It would have killed about three and a half thousand people had had it been allowed to run its course um, in the same way that European countries did. Um, if if that had been the case, that would have made it the fourth or fifth largest killer of New Zealanders last year. Why are we treating it differently? Yeah, and. Phrasing it in a slightly different, but arguably uh, more positive way again with the, the, the deployment of COVID tactics. A number of people in the um, the cancer space have, have commented to me, to go, for years we've been trying to get various cancer drugs, doesn't matter if it's for breast cancer or lung cancer, no no checkbook opened no. yet over two years, and I won't go down the rabbit hole of spending, but there's been no issue, no cost, no drug, no nothing that can't be purchased. And you go, no, I agree. 
I agree. Incidentally, one of the questions one of the questions I get asked occasionally from people when I talk about that three and a half thousand figure is they say to me, "Well, who should those three and a half thousand people have been?" You know, and that's a fair question. Except the answer to that is, "Well, well, who chooses who the five thousand that die from coronary heart disease are on the same basis? Or who does who chooses who the people that die from lung disease or from influenza or any other cause of death which is greater than COVID would have been?" So it's a reasonable argument, but it's an argument that applies to any of those conditions, and it's a conscious decision that we make as a democratic society. Yeah, and arguably for many of the causes of death, um, certain groups, particularly Mountain Pacifica, are overrepresented, but I think that's your point. That's something that's uh, countrywide. It's not specific to this uh, particular, uh, well, disease, virus. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think probably as we wrap up too, for me it's one of the big things of what you're saying, and certainly what I'm hearing, uh, If hopefully they're the same thing, is really what we thought was the situation to what it now is has changed and that's normal yes. our thinking should have evolved our yes. knowledge has certainly evolved and consequently the rest of the world has the rest of the world's evolved that's why they're coming out of it well i'm cynical as well as you probably know i am always fascinated by what is reported and what is not uh, which states or countries are front and center in our media and which ones are not uh, and I'm often amazed, again, as I move about the electorate and talk with locals to go, well, do you know what the UK has just recently done? Or even Austria, for example, like, what, what's happened? They know what's happening in New South Wales or parts of America. So it's a lot of choices have been exercised um, throughout this uh, pandemic. Yeah, agreed. Ab absolutely agreed. It'll, it'll be interesting to see where we are later this year versus where most of the rest of the world is. And my anticipation is that within a, within a couple of months, the rest of the world will be pretty much back to normal. Uh, international travel will be restored. Um, there may still be some residual measures in place for those that want them, but by and large, the world will, will be getting on and, and COVID will be largely a thing of the past. New Zealand, the way we're looking at the moment, we could still be sitting in this hermit kingdom, as John described it, uh, John Key described it in, in October, November. And that's, that's a very, very scary thought. Well, there's probably a reason amongst others to have you back on. We can we can reflect in a few months' time on this podcast and see if you and I were were, were right. But, hey, Ashley, once again, thank you so much uh, for joining us, for you just to, again, extrapolate uh, off the figures that you've seen and your, your thoughts around it. It's incredibly uh, welcome. As listeners know, I'm someone who prefers more conversation, not less. I just think these ideas are fantastic. Um, and in thanking you too, Ashley, to encourage listeners, I said, look him up on LinkedIn, but the best place to go is his website, ashleychurch, one word, uh, .com, a repository of all his, his thinking there. And I know you love the feedback, you like the debate, uh, so encourage people to do that. And Ashley, as, as always, thanks for your time. Thanks, Simon. Appreciate it very much, and we'll talk again soon.